in case you've missed some of the background, it's helpful. I've entitled this morning's message, A Picture of Christ's People Persecuted, Insights from the Church at Smyrna. And the background that we find ourselves coming to is certainly worthy of uh, a bit of review, if you would. The moment we stepped into chapter 1 of this book and, and read verses 9 through 20, we would all agree that there was a divine appointment in the life of John being banished to the island called Patmos. And though it was penned thousands of years ago, to uh, physical, real churches throughout Asia Minor, prompted by the Holy Spirit, it becomes so relevant to every one of us today, both personally and to the church at large. When he said in, in verse 9 of chapter 1 that he was John, uh, your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, that he was put on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We agreed a couple of weeks back in our study that it's the word of God that will put us where we are and it's the word of God that will make us who we are. That principle doesn't change. Our investigation of this place called Patmos that John has been banished to, it was a, a prison island, and those of us living here in California can quickly identify to something like Alcatraz over in the Bay Area, which was uh, predominantly a, a, an island prison and which was supposed to be inescapable. Well, they found out, of course, that you could escape from Alcatraz, but uh, I would venture to say there was no escaping from Patmos. It was an uh, island that was rich in marble, as I had shared before, and to be exiled there was to be made a prisoner in the quarries, to quarry for marble, to feed uh, the lust and the desire of Rome and its need to make gods out of that marble. John tells us in the first chapter that he was in the spirit. So here he is in prison on an island in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard a voice behind him as of a loud trumpet. And then Jesus tells him who it is that is speaking to him. He told him that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that he is he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, in verse 18 of chapter 1. And he told John to write three things. He told John to write what he had just heard. He told John to write what he was about to hear. And then he was told that he was to write the things that would come after what he is about to hear. And in our previous study, uh, to remind us that chapters 2 and 3 encompass 
Jesus' letter to those physical real churches, which amount to seven, but also involved a letter to the complete church throughout all the church age. And it gives us a brief outline for the book of Revelation. That chapters 2 and 3 comprise the dispensation of the church age, which we live in right now. When we get into chapters 4 through the end of the book, that will come after the church is taken, raptured, and placed into the presence of Almighty God. So we come now to the church at Smyrna. I draw our attention back to verse 8. As Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, says the first and the last, he who was dead and came to life. In our introductory of these letters to the churches, we established a very important fact, that angels throughout scripture are often used by God to do what? To bring a message. And so, as Jesus is saying to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the messenger to the church of Smyrna, to the one who will bring that gospel message and will uh, reinforce my word. And often that messenger is reflected in uh, the overseers of a New Testament church. We have a couple of different Examples of that in the New Testament, episcopos, a bishop, overseer, pastor, elder, those that are responsible for the care of the body of the Christ, of the body of Christ. And in that care is not only uh, uh, physical watching of how the body of Christ is, but a feeding of the body of Christ through the word of God. And so it is an easy, logical conclusion to say that this letter is to that pastor of a church. There in Smyrna, that, this letter is a pastor to those that would bring the word of God to believers. Smyrna, many interesting facts that help us uh, get a, a, a grasp on what the believers in Smyrna were experiencing. I'll share some facts with you. It was the birthplace of Homer in 750 BC. He was uh, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And if you're anything like me, like, well, I remember that from school a little bit. What was it? Well, it was a um, philosophical text that has, in fact, affected Western thinking even to today the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer. Uh, by the 5th century, Alexander the Great had come to Smyrna and conquered it, uh, reviving the city, seeing to it that temples to Greek gods were built all over the city. It had a theater that would hold 20,000 people. It was a city of great wealth. It had a harbor. It was a trade route. Exports were many, one of which were wines, uh, in 322 B.C., Rome conquered Smyrna at the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, 
And by 196 BC, Smyrna had built the first temple called Dea Roma, which was the goddess of Rome. And that goddess of Rome was the spiritual symbol for emperors. And you can see how if a, a Roman goddess was the spiritual symbol of emperors, goddesses were to be worshipped, it wasn't a very long step before emperor worship became the route for the Roman citizen. In 23 AD, Smyrna won the privileged uh, task over 11 other cities of building the first temple worship to Emperor Tiberius Caesar. It was a leading city in the cult of uh, emperor worship in Rome. John is writing somewhere around 80 to 90 AD to bring us like to, okay, when is John writing this letter and how is this uh, affecting that current population? By this time, Smyrna was the largest city in Asia Minor and the emperor at this time was Domitian. If you've studied any of the Roman emperors and their uh, position toward Christianity, you will find that Domitian was one of the most vile. And it was ancient history that tells us Domitian was the one who banished John to Patmos. So there he is, receiving revelation by the revelator. In verse 9, Jesus goes on to say to the Christians in the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Excuse me. I take great comfort in a couple of things here. One, that the Lord says, I know. And notice it's repeated twice. Doesn't matter where his people are, the Lord knows where they are. Doesn't matter what his people are going through, the Lord knows what his people are going through. And here, what we have is Jesus looking at his bride, the church, looking at their suffering for his name's sake. And he says that he knows the tribulation that they are experiencing. Now, there are a couple of comments about this particular tribulation or trial one commentator tells us that for a man to become a Christian anywhere at this time was to become an outlaw. But in Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter the Christian church was literally to take his life into his own hands. The Smyrna church was a place for heroes. 
Another commentator tells us that this tribulation does not mean the common trials to which all flesh is heir. Some dear souls think that they are bearing their cross every time they have a headache or have trouble meeting a bill. The tribulation mentioned here is trouble that they would not have had had they not become Christians. We'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the variety of different persecutions in just a moment. But Jesus said, I know what you're going through. And he says that to you and to me this morning. If you hear one thing today, know that he knows what you are going through. And that you are not alone in that. He says he knows their poverty. He says, but you are rich. That statement stops me and, and causes me to think several things. One of which that this is, this is how Jesus viewed the church at Smyrna. That they're rich. They're not poor. <clears throat> Someone once said, every outward circumstance said that the Christians in Smyrna were poor, even destitute, but Jesus saw through the circumstance to see that they were really rich. The sweet-smelling Smyrna, the poorest but purest of the seven. Sweet comment. I hope you might agree with me today that prosperity has never caused the church to flourish spiritually. Let me say it again. Prosperity, having all things uh, accessible financially, has never caused spiritual flourishing in the church. You remember what he wrote to the church in Laodicea, In the third chapter, verse 17, that church said, hey, we're rich. We've become wealthy. We have nothing that we need. And Jesus said, no, sorry, you don't really understand, but that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Here in the West, we live, uh, read it years ago, we live at a uh, level that is above most of the rest of the world. And so you and I enter uh, a unique situation that as Christians here in the West, how, do we, how are we to deal with that most of all of what we need, our needs are met? How a Christian handles Prosperity is very important in the eyes of God. How a Christian handles wealth is critical in the eyes of God. And and we're even told in Mark's gospel, Jesus said that uh, wealth can sometimes be a real hindrance to a person entering the kingdom of God and taking up residence there. Mark Chapter 10, verse 24, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad you aren't rich today? You say, well, wait a minute. You know, I was hoping I'd get the lottery or, you know, win a few bucks somewhere. Someone may note that oftentimes material riches are acquired by and maintained at the expense of spiritual riches. Uh, There's a story about a pope during the Renaissance period, so this would have been, you know, many years ago, that a man and the pope were walking along and the man was looking at all the items that were there in the Vatican. And if you've been there, there's uh, been no lack of expensive things that have been built uh, at great cost. And the man and the Pope were walking along and the Pope said to the man, he said, look, he says, we no longer need to uh, say, like Peter said to the lame man, silver and gold have I none. And the man responded, he said, yes, but neither can you say rise up and walk. The Smyrna church was rich in many ways. One of the ways in which the Smyrna church was rich was in leadership. There was a disciple of John, a man by the name of Polycarp. And talking with someone earlier this morning, I hadn't remembered this, but Polycarp was Uh, placed on a stake and and supposedly going to be burned and the the fire wouldn't light. He served in the Smyrna church until 155 AD and died heroically as a martyr. So it is interesting that poverty or a lack of wealth can, in fact, encourage spiritual depth. Not that any of us this morning would necessarily sign up and go, okay, hey, Lord, go make me poor now because I want to be spiritually rich. Don't get the wrong message. Your depth of love for God and willingness to surrender your life to his will is not directly connected to your or my status of income. What is directly connected to our love for God and our willingness to surrender our lives to his work is the work of his spirit with what we do have, who we are. God will meet us right where we are, take what we have as we are, and use our circumstance right here and right now to carve the person of Christ in us if we are willing. Are you willing? Jesus said, I see your works, your tribulation, your poverty but you are rich. 
What's interesting is what he wanted them to do. Knowing what they are in the middle of, What's interesting is him saying to them, now here's what I want you to do. And I'll draw our attention to verse 10. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, we read it, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Notice a few things that he did not say to them. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, nevertheless. He didn't have a nevertheless statement for the persecuted church. He didn't tell them, and by the way, I'm going to protect you from all suffering. He didn't tell them, Don't worry, I won't let them harm you. He said, do not fear what's about to happen. I think that's an important uh, word for you and I this morning. Bring it fast forward 2,000 years. There's a lot of uh, ruffling in the air today as we look at world events. We look at what's going on in Israel, between Hamas and Israel, between Iran, between Syria, and we, we look at a powder keg uh, ready to happen in that part of the world in which nations are taking their side of where they're going to stand as where Israel is concerned. And yeah, I'm mentioning Israel again because we don't want to forget today that there are soldiers on the ground there fighting for their life. And if someone came to your front door, this is what always gets me, if someone came to our front door here in the great nation of the United States of America and intended to take our freedom, we would not go for it. We would send troops and dismantle it now. 9-11. What was our response? Whoever is guilty for this horrific crime, they need to be brought to justice and eliminated, right? And all of us were fine with that. It was, it was our turf, our territory. And yet there's all this discussion about, well, should Israel really be doing what they're doing to, you know, Palestine? Yes. To destroy an evil like Hamas? Now, okay, his, the Lord's comment to the church and to the Christian and to you and I is do not fear what is about to come and happen to you. So as I was saying, there's a lot of ruffle in the air about whether or not, you know, we're at the very end of things. Could the, the Middle East blow up and we end, you know, we enter that season scripturally where we're in the the tribulation period and because we're here that hasn't happened yet the church is still here and yet there can be a a a motivation to fear well what's going to happen what's going to happen 
God hasn't given you or I a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind. If anybody should not be afraid of what's about to come, the Christian shouldn't. We should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I said a moment ago that we're going to talk about various levels of persecution. Um, I believe that persecution has various levels. And and what we're reading about here in uh, the church in Smyrna is one of the gravest degrees of persecution. Um, But persecution has different levels. I'm reading a book by Amir Tsafari, uh, Revealing Revelation. And I'm going to paraphrase something that he brings out because it's true, but also it has an amendment that should go alongside of it. In referring to persecution in general, Amir makes this statement. He says... uh, If you think the government telling you that, let's bring it home. If we think the government telling us that we can't meet, that we have to wear a mask, and wants to guide how we gather together, he said, that's not persecution. Why? He qualifies the statement because it's happening in mosques, Buddhist temples, and all manner of gathering back during our COVID period. So that persecution wasn't the persecution that Jesus is talking about here to the church of Smyrna, or the persecution that will come to the church in the last days. But you would be hard-pressed to tell our colleague, Mike McClure, over at Calvary Chapel in San Jose, whose church is still under fine by Santa Clara County's Board of Supervisors for tens of thousands of dollars, and I don't have my my figures right, but that they were all over that entity in how they were to conduct a religious service. You can't tell him that that wasn't persecution, because it was, and it is. So church persecution has a variety of levels. There may be that place at work where you as a vocal follower of Christ are set to the side because people don't want to hear your take on moral truth. There may may be that place in the job market where you can't get a job because of your particular position biblically. You may find yourself shunned by a variety of different societies because you hold true and firm to a biblical worldview and a solid Christianity. Don't think that you and I won't be persecuted, but there's a good point to that perspective that Amir brings out because Also, we should think about what's going on in Nigeria today. 
hundreds killed simply because they're Christians. North Korea today. So, to settle in and say, I'm, the Lord is exhorting us to not be afraid of what's about to come upon you. So let's just, let's stamp that and say, okay. The next thing that he tells us in that letter to the church, and therefore it's a word to us, is that the devil is the source of this persecution that they're uh, experiencing. But the purpose of the persecution is what? You will be tested. That persecution is intending, intending to test our faith, to test our sincerity, to walk with and follow the Lord no matter what's thrown at us. So the purpose is to bear fruit in our life. The source is that it's the devil. But notice, he says, you will be tested, you have tribulation. But notice, the Lord gives a time frame, a 10 days, you'll have it for 10 days. What does that tell you and I? It tells you and I that God remains sovereign in the testing of his people. The devil does not have freelance on what he wants to do. It comes under the almighty hand of a God who loves us. And here it is clear that God says it, it's going to be for a specific amount of time. So in your life and mine, what does that mean? If he brings a specific attack, a specific kind of persecution, a specific testing in your life and mine, God is sovereign and it remains there for a specific amount of time. Trusting and believing that in that testing, the the purpose of that testing and the fruit that he's desiring to um, see our lives bear will be brought out. And sometimes we don't get it. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> You've heard the phrase, I got to go around this mountain again. Maybe you can identify because sometimes there are certain testings that the Lord allows into our life for a specific amount of time and the fruit that he was intending to see our lives bear uh, doesn't happen. What that means is that that testing is going to come again and again and again until that particular characteristic reflection of Christ smell of his spirit upon us until it's produced. He closes that particular exhortation with be faithful unto death. 
So be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's all the Lord has ever asked of anyone, is to just be faithful. And faithfulness may look different um, in our lives. We're different people, but faithfulness to the Lord uh, is all that he's ever asked of you and I. And so notice there, there's a promise to the one who is faithful. He says, I will give the crown of life. In the New Testament, there's two types of crowns. One is the crown for a king. The other is a crown for a winner. And this is the crown that is reflected toward the winner. Faithful unto death, and I, you win. Isn't that great? He also says, in verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this phrase is repeated in every close to each uh, of the churches except uh, the next church, the church of Pergamos. And this phrase is an interesting phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. It doesn't mean that just because God has placed these two things on the side of my head that I'm able to hear what the Spirit is saying. And, wow, wouldn't we all just love to be able to hear the Spirit clearly? That could be the cry of our heart in these uh, dark days in which we live. Lord, open my ear that I might hear what your spirit is saying to the church at large and to me personally. But the promise that I enjoy at the end here is that he says, and, and he who overcomes, overcomes what? Well, what we just looked at. Overcomes the fear of what's about to come overcomes the confusion of why this persecution and testing is happening in my life. It's to bear fruit. Uh, overcomes the inclination to not be faithful, but remains faithful. So he who overcomes, notice the promise, shall not be hurt by the second death. And what is that a reference to? This simple gospel the fact that Jesus said, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So this physical body will one day die. But if I am a follower and a believer in the Son of God, only begotten, died on the cross at Calvary for my sin, have confessed my sin to him, asked him to forgive me of my sin. The Bible says that I am born again. There's a second birth. Well, guess what that second birth promises me? It promises me eternal life. Someone once put it this way, born once, 
You die twice. You die physically and you die spiritually and you spend eternity in the throes of hell. Born twice, you die once. The physical body dies, but your spiritual man lives. And he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To that we say yes and amen, Lord. Thank you for that promise. The ear to hear the Spirit speaking, the grace to overcome the trial pending, the promise of eternal blessing. What a word to a church in the throes of persecution. But what a word to us today that we can see it coming. We can see the storm building and its ample ammunition to strengthen us and to prepare us for this life which we live. So what is faithfulness? I think this morning for us, faithfulness is as we come to the communion table. Faithfulness means remembering what he has done for you, receiving what he died to give, Reminding yourself of his great love and responding to that love with a surrendered life. Let me say it again. Faithfulness. This morning, faithfulness to us is coming to this table and remember what you did for me, Lord. Thank you. Receiving what he died to give. Thank you, Lord. Reminding myself that it was because of his great love that he gave his life. And there's no greater response than to respond in love with a surrendered life. Is your life surrendered this morning to Jesus Christ? Have you decided this year, this new year, I'm surrendering it all afresh to you, Lord? He offers a brand new start every day. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you as we take the opportunity to remember your sacrifice through, through these elements that represent your body and your blood. As we gather this morning, Lord, to take of the communion, we are reminded that our salvation came at the highest cost. Lord, thank you. And so we enter this new year, this beginning again, now remembering what you've done, receiving why you died remembering your love and committed to responding, no matter what comes, responding to that love with our lives surrendered. Take us to the cross today and every day that we might live for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Brethren are going to distribute the elements. Let's hold them. We'll take them together.
on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord, knowing what was coming, with those that he loved and had poured his life out for three years, had spent that time causing them and through his word the entire world to know what his father is like. Jesus said, you want to know what the father's like? Look at me. So many are asking today, who is God? What is God like? And there's a clear picture for each one of us. And he, loving them, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he says that to you and me this morning afresh. Let it be heard as though you've never heard it before. What I want you to do, he says, take it and eat it. And as you do, remember me. Let's partake together. the efficiency of the blood of the Son of God. As Austin prayed earlier this morning, he said, you could have given us anything, God. What you gave us was your Son. Powerful. In the same manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin. So take it and drink all of it, and as you do, Remember me, let's partake together. Will you join me in giving thanks? Lord, we do thank you. Words are not enough, but they're all we have. And so we say thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, for your forgiveness, for your love. Would you take us to that cross every time we forget about it? We're your people. And we're here because you love us. We ask you to show us your heart, Lord. Show us your love fresh. Call us close to your side. Let us walk with you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Will you stand as we sing?